0: From Beyond the Beltway, this is Paul Listick sitting in the host chair tonight for the legendary Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics with occasional injection of rumor and innuendo, all (laughs) offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary in our 6 p.m. hour by economist and professor at DePaul University, Mike Miller and an education expert and the former superintendent of the Chicago Public School System, Paul Vallis. In our 7 o'clock hour, we'll be joined by Democratic consultant Doug Herman from Los Angeles and Republican attorney and conservative blogger Josh Pantrow. We are coming tonight from our temporary home studio at WCGO 1590 in Evanston, just a little bit north of Chicago and good evening everybody once again i am paul listick i'm the political analyst at wgn tv where i host wgn tv political report every sunday morning at 9 a.m and tonight it repeats at 1 30 a.m if you missed it and it's my pleasure to sit in for bruce who will return next week let's turn to our topics in this first hour we're going to be talking about the pandemic and its impact on education the desire of the administration to open the schools and we're going to be dealing with the economy as well because our experts come from those two very important fields. We always invite you to join the conversation and you can call in at 800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. Call in and join the conversation. Um, I wanna first bring up the fact that President Trump has made it very clear along with Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos today on all of her Sunday morning show appearances (laughs) that schools must open. I almost wanna say come hell or high water Uh, They want schools to open if we can find a way. Paul Vallis, you are an expert in education. You guided New Orleans uh, out of the jam after Hurricane Katrina. You were the former superintendent or are the former superintendent of the Chicago Public Schools here. So a very simple question for you,
1: Mr. Vallis. Are we ready to open our schools around the country? Well, let me point out just one comment about the president. First of all, he can't force schools to open. And it's always better to use the carrot rather than the stick, you know, after the after the initial fiasco in new orleans the bush administration got it together and basically said "What do you need to rebuild the system we told them what we needed they provided the funding if trump took that approach i think it would uh he would have a more receptive audience the question though is schools do have to open because serious damage is being done uh children in a normal summer period will lose 20 percent of their knowledge kids have been out of school for five or six months are they social distancing i mean at the end of the day uh, the, the quarantine is, is having a, uh, the most adverse impact on individuals who don't have the resources at home, can't do remote learning, don't have anybody to supervise the kids. So at the end of the day, serious, serious damage is being done to children, particularly those children on the margins. And I know for a fact when I uh, took responsibility for New Orleans, literally more than a year after Katrina, because I didn't go down there until the second year because they couldn't get schools open, I had students returning to school who were... I mean, almost at the point where they were beyond recovery, they were three, four years behind. So schools need to get open. And, and if you're going to reopen the economy, uh, you're going to have to, the kids are going to have to get back to school because you know uh, the greatest impact, the greatest impact is on working families and the poor. They can't afford the babysitting services. You know, who's going to take care of their children? Who's going to watch your children at home? So it's critically important that schools reopen. I, I, I want to make one other point too, and, and I'm not minimizing, uh, the importance of protecting the health of every child. But at the end of the day, uh, children are being impacted the, the least. Wirepoints put out something just the other day, uh, and they were using federal data. And they pointed out that in Illinois, only four, uh, four people under the age of 20 had, had died because of, of COVID-19. And at the federal level, under the age of 15, I saw different numbers. Any, anywhere from 14 to 19 had died. During that same period, over 200. Uh, young people had died, children had died, because of uh, the flu, the flu and, and, and because of pneumonia. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I, I'm not minimizing the fact that there could be long-term implications of you know contracting the virus and things like that, but the bottom line is, there are things that you can take, there, there are things that you can do to minimize the risk, and if I get an opportunity to talk about those things, I'll be more happy to identify what these essentials are.
0: And we'll come back to that. Let me go to Professor Mike Miller, an economist, and Professor over at DePaul, because I think as I listen to Paul Vallis, Michael, you know, I, I, I kind of think that most people, when we talk about the kids in school, we have younger kids in mind, uh, the K through 12. Right. I said it's kind of where everybody's mindset is. Right. You teach at the university level, so you've got university students, graduate students. Do you share Mr. Vallis's concerns at that level, or are you more comfortable with a remote learning situation and uh,
2: people not being in the classroom? Remote learning is a, is an option that uh, works much better, I think, at college and graduate level than it mm-hmm. does at the, end, at the children level. Uh, the key though, is to make sure that the students who get involved in distance learning choose that. Not everyone has the personality, the drive, mm-hmm. and the uh, discipline to learn online. And they get behind and then they get they, they really do lose out. Now I'm not going I argue that uh, that you can get this, the same amount of education online as you can in the classroom. It's just slightly different. Uh, in my case, in economics, some of the students end up doing more problem-related uh, information, but what we lose is that person personal interaction that you can't get anywhere else except in the classroom. But mm-hmm. I, agree, I agree completely with Paul that if you weigh the costs and benefits of uh, the uh, children going back to school, it clearly comes down that we have to open. And what astounds me, are the number of people making uh, horrible accusations against the president and others that what they want to do is kill the children.
3: Uh, mm-hmm. I,
2: I think it's Trump derangement syndrome gone gone mm-hmm. mad, and I hate I, I can't believe I had to use that expression. But these people, I, I can't imagine. I mean, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics said, go back to school. We have got to do this. So, Paul
0: Vallis, let me come to you. You did say you wanted to talk about some of the steps yeah. you take. This is the good time for it, but I want to put it in context because clearly you're about to tell me that we'll have people over age two probably wearing masks, we'll have social distancing where it's possible, but let me then have you address it with these caveats. Number one, assuming that you and Mike Miller are right, that maybe we're not as worried about these kids getting uh, COVID-19. If they did, they would probably do very well from it, not in all cases, but mostly. But the concern, of course, is bringing home COVID-19 to parents and
4: grandparents,
0: and also their teachers and staffers and other people in the school, the cafeteria and elsewhere,
1: who are older who went subject to it would not have necessarily the same right about
4: yeah
1: right so let me speak to that but and let me point out that when you look at the percentage of children uh, of, of people of people getting covid 19 disproportionate in in the minority community I mean next to retirement homes and things like that and there's you know it's impacting the minority community I submit to you that part of that reason is also because you know they they can't afford to do the social distancing I mean you know my wife has some <laughs> My wife likes to say she likes social distancing from me, Yeah, but she works at TSA, and you know she's at one oh, section my. of the house, and I'm at the other section of the house. Oh, I have man. two sons that are first responders. One got COVID, the other didn't. My two administrative assistants in New Orleans one, both got COVID, one died, one barely recovered. So oh. at the end of the day, clearly there is a risk here, but let me just mention what needs to be done. Uh, uh, you know, The key here is doing some fundamental things, because the, in Europe and in Asia, they've opened up their schools. And they haven't seen a spike of inf- infections, but they're doing fundamental things, fund- things that this country should have done months ago. N- number one, it- screening. And incidentally, you know, the, the, you know I have facial recognition devices that can do screening in, section, in, sec- in seconds? And these recognition de- devices are extremely affordable. I'm, I'm going to sum up all the costs of doing this stuff in a second. First of all, they're screening. So constant screening. Uh, Parents need to screen at home. You need to screen when the kids get on the bus and when they're in school. And you need to screen anybody visiting the school, number one. Number two, masking. And look, I agree. Not all the kids are going to wear the masks all the time. But the point is they can wear them in.
3: There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. A few
5: years ago, Steve Faircow's lungs were failing. I don't think I had more than a couple weeks to live. That's when Steve received a lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. Now Steve can do things he never imagined, like climbing 94 floors to the top of a skyscraper. I never knew that breathing could feel this good. It's an incredible gift. What could you make possible as an organ eye and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services.
6: Jay Farner
7: here, CEO of Rocket Mortgage. Making the right financial decisions has never been more important. When you turn to Rocket Mortgage, we can help guide you to those right decisions now, when they matter most. Mortgage rates are near historic lows, so now is a great time to call 8338-ROCKET. And if you need some extra money, a cash-out refinance could give you that financial boost you're looking for. Call today at 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com to learn more. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 3030
0: and welcome back to beyond the beltway with bruce dumont i am not bruce dumont i am his friend paul Listnik from wgn tv sitting in for bruce tonight carrying on a conversation of great interest with the former superintendent of chicago public schools paul Vallis, and professor and economist over at DePaul paul university professor mike miller Uh, Paul, I have to cut you off as we were going to break, so I'm going to let you continue. We were talking about what needs to be done within the schools to let students return safely, and really we're talking about some of the younger folks in that setting.
1: Well, fundamentally, fundamentally, uh, a plan needs to be be built around five things. One is you have to have screening, and there are devices that allow you to screen instantly uh, and affordably. Secondly, you've got to have a quarantine plan, so if students uh, are infected, they're screened, they're quarantined, they're sent home, you connect them with testing. Or if, if students uh, in school uh, demonstrate symptoms, you're able to quarantine them quickly. Uh, and, and obviously screening begins at home. So you really have to educate the parents and do some fundamental things too. The third thing you have to do is you have to socially distance. And it's like the six foot 50 person rule, meaning kids try to keep the six feet it's a distance from one another and no gatherings of more than 50 people in, in close settings. But let me point out, that you can, you, can, you can partially address that, and I apologize for the dog barking, you can partially address that by purchasing screens, screens that can separate the desks, screens that can be in front of people. That's what they're doing in Europe. They have these plastic screens, they're transparent screens, so that can help compensate for the inability to socially distance. And then a fourth is masking, and not every child is going to be have, have masks. But if you have them socially distancing, if you have the screens, et cetera, everything contributes. Uh, it, it's all part of it. And then the fifth thing is you have to have constant cleaning. So those are the five things. Your public safety plan needs to be built around those five things. And, if you, and that's what they're doing in Europe. And that's why they're not having a spike. Uh, and, and, and if you do that, you're not only protecting the children, but you're also protecting the teachers because the teachers will mask. The teachers can't be behind screens, et cetera. So there are things you can do to significantly minimize the risks. And Professor Mike Miller, you're our economist, so you understand the numbers of everything. And let me ask you, what
0: Paul described in many instances is not inexpensive. I mean, these things no. cost money. So I'm sort of curious, as an economic strategy, do you support the administration's approach, which seems to be the stick, open up or we will pull funding from you? Not sure they can do that anyway. but no, I don't Or should they be going with the carrot, which is to say, and if you need
2: economic help, we'll get it to you. I would think that's the only way to go. I, clearly, I, I believe that the states and the local uh, government control education. The less that the federal government is involved, the better. But the federal government is the one with the money, and this is a unique situation. And the uh, government has been part of the, the issue in that they've shut things down, and therefore, they uh, broke it, so they have to somewhat pay for it. Um, so I think that uh, Mr. Trump ought to work with Congress to provide funds as necessary, just so it's not wasted. But of course, we know that there's lots of corruption within the, some of the uh, school systems and, and that money will be, uh, will be wasted. But we have to take care of the children, I guess. And, and, uh, and, you know, people, children are easily distracted as I, having raised a couple of them. And uh, luckily I don't teach them because uh, that's too hard. Uh, being mm-hmm. a, a school teacher is, a, is to have the teach the ability to do that is a, is a blessing. Uh, but you know children are going to be distracted by a lot of these items and and I, I still wonder given how uh, how little children are affected by this virus and how little they transmit it to others based upon the science that I'm not'm I'm, I'm not completely convinced we have to go to such great lengths to uh, to protect or to separate children from each other well Paul, you something do that. like the six feet. Where did that come from? Why isn't it five and a half? Why isn't yeah. it seventeen? It, it just—well, I, I swear they just make numbers up. No, that
0: that was a random number, and I've heard experts yeah. in
2: science. Yeah. No, and, and that's that's a number
1: that's a number that you've seen in uh, from the CDC or FN. I bet it. they make that up. Let me make up. a point. Let me make a point about expenses. Clearly, you know, the unions are going to argue we need more staff. We need to do more staff size uh, staff size reduction, and we need greater ratios. Look, I mean, the schools were literally closed for four months. What were they doing? Were they preparing online curriculum? Were they going through online training? I well, that's what I was doing. I mean, they had uh, an online program and maybe and 40% of the kids were online two or fewer days a week and tens of thousands were not online at all. And online wasn't being online eight hours a day. It was downloading or getting so the bottom line is it was a disaster. The point yes. that I want to make is, is the staffing issues aside, the staffing issues aside, the cost, I costed out the cost of a 500 person school, the cost of the Kiosks, the temperature taking kiosks, the devices, the cost of the reusable masks, the cost of the plastic screens, per school is twenty-five thousand dollars. You know what the budget? You know how much money a school of five hundred uh, gets uh, in per pupil funding? Six to seven million dollars. Yeah. So the point is, it is not a cost issue. There, there are going to the issue. The teachers are going to lobby for more. I mean, the unions are going to say, we want more time for professional development. We want more time for this, or we want more staff, or we need more nurses. And and look, the Chicago Public Schools have a $7.7 billion budget for 300,000 kids. They haven't seen significant cutbacks yet. The state is providing level funding. The city's providing a a subsidy, a city subsidy of of almost $600 million. And there is going to be a second, a second relief act that's going to give more money to schools, whatever Trump says. It's going to happen. Yeah, so but, at the end of the day, it's not a money issue. It's, a, it's an issue of prioritizing, cooperating, suspending some, some of the rules during this crisis situation uh, so that we can make accommodations, more training, more flexibility. That's what we're talking about.
2: Michael? But there's also a timing issue here. This is the, the 12th of July. Yeah. Literally one month from now, a lot of the suburban school districts are going to open. What is the probability that's that they're going to be able to do all? Uh, what you say, uh, Paul, makes a lot of sense. I I, I supported you when I, even though I'm in the burbs, I supported you when you were here in Chicago. Uh, I just don't know if the schools can actually pull this off. And that's going to lead to this question. Should the children come back? And I'm still right. convinced that the science tells us the answer is yes. And they mm-hmm. can work on it the best they can. Uh, so. Well, um, what, what I mean, and, and Paul Valls, I'll, I'll ask you this question because you did run the school system in, in
0: New Orleans and here in Philadelphia, too, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you, you know, and again, our audience here is, is nationwide, if not around the world. So um, let, let's be broader because I understand we all have Chicago in our head. It's, it's our home. Well, I was using uh,
1: it as an example.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. I get that. But my question is, we may have viewers, uh, viewers and listeners who are, who are tuning in right now and they're welcome to call us. I'll give the number again, 800-723-8289. What do you have when people are in districts that say, you know, we just don't have that kind of money? We're we're in, you know, some part of, of,
1: a, of Mississippi or some other
0: state. We don't have but
1: that funding kind of available to us. The staffing issues aside, you know, because I, I'll submit to you that it's mm-hmm. it's probably more cost efficient to provide online instruction than than it is, uh, or less costly. Not cost well. Yeah. Thank but, you. Yeah, yes, Less I'm costly. i going to correct you. There's on that. no substitute yeah. for in-person instruction, particularly among your lower kids. Uh, from younger kids, but but the point is, online instruction should not be an additional expense if you provide the curriculum, instructional models, etc. I mean, you can. It becomes a scheduling problem. It becomes a training problem. You see, so uh, online instruction should not add, cost you significantly more. And the federal government in, in most states, and the money that they've allocated that they're making available under the uh, uh, under the CARES Act, uh, it, you know, they you know, eighty percent increase in their Title One funds they should be using it to upgrade their capacity to provide remote instruction. But I can't say this until I, you know, I, I can't say this enough. You know, there are fundamental things that reduce the risk and if children are not, are, are not at risk, cl- clearly adults are, and like 30% of the teachers in this country are over 50 and for good reason, they have concerns, you know, they have concerns about, health. well, you know, the things that diminish the spread of the virus is screening is quarantine somebody who's, Who's you know who uh, has symptoms is masking is if not social distancing a combination of social uh, social distancing and creating these barriers which many schools in Asia in Asia and elsewhere have done and then cleaning I mean that's not rocket science some people may say we're going overboard but if it reduces the risk if it put, puts parents at ease uh, and if it makes the faculty more comfortable because you're absolutely right. I don't think, and I've been talking about this since April In April, I posted things online about remote instruction, how to do testing, how to do screening. Uh, I I think a lot of districts are not going to be prepared. And I think the inclination is going to be to delay opening. I think there's going to be a lot of resistance to reopening. And I think that's going to be tragic for the kids. And believe me, this, uh, what is happening now is you want to talk about inequities in this country. Well, the inequities are going to grow by leaps and bounds. Because, uh, you know, your, your income has a direct relationship with your ability to learn remotely, That's to right. uh, work remotely, uh, you know, to, to yep. be socially interactive. I mean, it is catastrophic. It's going to have a catastrophic impact. It's going to doom a generation of children. Mike Miller, I want to ask ask Mike Miller
0: a question here because this is a university level question. I'm not going to say any university names because I don't want to be wrong. But I am familiar with some universities who are going to do teach remotely in the fall. Older people, so I, I get that. But by the way, that fifty thousand dollar tuition you pay, right. that ain't going down. So <laughs> no. I'm sort of just curious to know whether your take. And I don't maybe I'm cynical about it, but I mean, do you think there should be a reduction? We're doing it remotely, so we're also going to give you a break on your
2: tuition, or or, or should it be no? It really costs the same. You know, you got to pay all the teachers. Oh right? uh, boy, because uh, personnel is a large part of the cost. So clearly, it's it, that means that the cost is still pretty much the same. Uh, the The issue here, again, is those who choose it versus those who don't. Uh, When people choose to have online, just like those who went to University of Phoenix and other places that specialize, Capella and so forth, they know exactly what they're getting into. They're paying a price that they have to hope that when they get into the open market that they can sell their credential at the highest possible price, and they have to hope that it was worth it, and what we have, what we're putting students into now is that part of paying say for a private school like DePaul is the interaction it is that personal interaction which we're not providing uh, we're trying we're, we're having uh, 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 groups online and, and uh, so forth so we do everything we can to make this happen I understand the people wanting to uh, ask for this cut I, I just many universities will close if that is the case
0: I, and i'm not surprised But right we're going to be taking a break i want to invite people again if you want to call in have questions or comments you want to make about the school funding situation about whether people should return to school 1-800-723-8289 we of course also are beaming along and streaming on facebook and youtube if you leave a comment on uh, facebook i'm uh, going to check it out during the break and we'll be right
8: back every year millions of americans use opioids to manage pain pain can be unrelenting overwhelming and all-consuming So why do so many of us try to manage pain only from the palm of our hands? Doctor-prescribed opioids are appropriate in some cases, but they just mask the pain. And reliance on opioids has led to the worst drug crisis in American history. That's why the CDC recommends safer alternatives, like physical therapy, to manage pain. Physical therapists treat pain through movement, hands-on care, and patient education. No warning labels required. And by increasing physical activity, you can also reduce your risk of other chronic diseases. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. When it comes to your health, you have a choice. Choose more movement and better health. Choose physical therapy. Visit MoveForwardPT.com to find a physical therapist in your area. This message is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association.
0: And welcome back to Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont, everybody. We're talking about the pandemic and education with my guest. Let's take a moment as we start the second half hour and have uh, us talk about ourselves a little bit since I'm not Bruce Dumont. I am Paul Lipnick, (laughs) the political analyst at WGN-TV, where I host WGN-TV Political Report. On Sunday mornings at nine o'clock, and then again it repeats at night, 1.30 a.m. You'll also see me on all the number one-rated news programs, WGN I mean, number one, almost everywhere, um, talking about the politics of the day. And uh, I've written a book. It's behind me. It's called The Soon Guild. It's my first fiction book. Uh, Paul Dallas, you of course wouldn't know anything about that. It's about uh, corruption in Illinois government. Oh. So, uh, you know, come on, uh, and that. <laughs> Nothing there. And joining me, it's fiction, though, it's fiction. And uh, joining me as well is Paul Vallis. He is uh, an education expert, clearly, former superintendent of the Chicago Public Schools, superintendent of the schools in New Orleans and Philadelphia. He knows education better than anybody, uh, except maybe a guy in the classroom, and that's Professor Mike Miller, who that's is right. a botanist and a professor at DePaul University. Uh, once again, we encourage people to call in at 800 723 8289. So I've been monitoring the Facebook comments. And, um, you know, they're all over the place, and I appreciate everybody writing in, but I picked a couple. We have everything from it's a gamble we can't afford, meaning sending the kids back to school, too risky, to, hey, it's the parents' choice. Let them decide what they want to do, and others saying it's a good plan. Mike Miller, I'll start with you. What's well, your sense about saying let the parents
2: decide? It is the parents to decide. Uh, I think ultimately that's the case because they decide whether to send them to a private school, a public school, or to home school. Uh, but in terms of it's a gamble, It's life is a gamble. Getting onto a school bus in the morning is a gamble. Not every child makes it to school uh, every morning because sometimes children are killed in, in accidents and so forth. I think people have become spooked by this particular disease. And, and I'm not sure I can quite understand it, given that it doesn't affect children. So the idea that if there is a chance that a child will die, that we cannot open the entire school system, you're looking only at the benefits, and you're, you're ignoring totally the the enormous costs in terms of uh, the children being at home and not learning and the long-term cost in terms of their skills and their education. And uh, so a gamble, yes, is a gamble that we should all be taking.
0: Uh, Paul, before I get to you uh, on that, we have a caller, so let's go ahead and take a okay. call. We love when viewers are part of this, we have Mark from Carmel. Mark? Um, your notion is kids are not going to spread the virus, right? So we ought to open the
4: schools.
9: Well, yeah. In my local newspaper this morning, it said children aren't germ carriers. Adults are. And as you read down through the article, it says, uh, we assume this new virus acts just like the flu and common cold, so classrooms full of kids would create one giant cootie colony. But a growing body of research suggests young children aren't responsible for most viral transmission. Now, at collateral to that is the fact that you guys are talking about this magic bullet like uh, everybody should be able to homeschool, everybody should be oh, able no,
4: to Oh, no, I don't believe that. No, you no, know, I don't believe know, that. I don't believe that at
9: The remote education you're talking about, I've seen examples of it in my town and around with people that I know, and they've told me, and these are professionals, educated college education professional people that say, this is impossible to do, and many of them are returning to work. Yep. Keep in mind the I fact agree. that half the kids in the country are being fed by, at their That's schools. Right. That's half right. the kids in the country are poor, and they don't have the situation at home like we all assume we do. And you've got this perfect storm of the next, tell-ever, who-knows-when, of coming up with this stupid generation. I mean, the kids are falling yeah. behind by leaps and bounds. They've lost a year already, what's and left. Oh, that's right.
2: right. And you got to understand, people learn differently. Uh, that's From childhood up through university, people learn differently. And online learning is a perfect vehicle for a certain kind of learner. And yeah, uh, the problem is that. we're trying to make everybody fit into that particular uh, slot, and it just can't work. So let me by the way there's somebody's putting a comment you on know, Facebook saying look kids have died from this and so i, I Yes i know so kids that, have died on 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 school buses children have died from all Yeah look i, I we got a i think Paul what was that number Paul how many children well, died well, from well, the well, flu well,
1: you know depending on what the most recent data uh, how many how many people have died in this country 130,000 or whatever the number is now huh. uh uh the uh the number is either 15 or 26. Those are individuals under the age of 15. In Illinois, Wirepoints put out an article a couple of days ago. Four, four individuals under the age of 20. Uh, Twenty, uh, almost 10 to 12 times the number have died from the flu and from from That's other right. I, I, from other disease from other respiratory diseases. So the point is, we're not saying that you know we're not trying to be uh, uh, we're not saying put children at risk. No. The damage that's gonna be done to this next generation is we will never recover from. And and you know what, you're gonna see it. You're gonna see it in right. our court systems. You're gonna see it in our prisons. There are so many children who are so dependent on the schools for not only the academics, but the social, emotional, and the uh, and the nutrition. And for for many children, the schools are the safest and most secure environment. I mean, at the end of the day, these schools have got to get open. And what I'm saying is, there are steps that you can take to minimize the risk. Yep. Not only minimize the risk for the least at risk population the children, but also to minimize the risk for the adults. And that's why I'm talking about screening. That's yeah. why I'm talking about masks mask that you use, not all the time, but you'll use them right. strategically. That's right. why I'm talking about, that's what we're, that why we're talking about having a quarantine procedure and, and why we're talking about these plastic screens.
2: Yeah. See, part of the problem is that uh, uh, the writer in that uh, post, in my mind, what they believe is the number one criterion for life is safety. And safety cannot be the number one criterion for your life. It's a life not well lived. We always take risks. And I think people have all of a sudden lost the ability to weigh risks. Could be, I just wonder if the person who wrote that smokes or if the person who wrote that is overweight or if the person who wrote that is using too much alcohol. These are things that really can affect your life, and people don't seem to measure those risks the same way. Yeah, let's, let's, so go to, let's go back to the phone lines. Let's go back to the phone lines okay, uh, well. while we
0: can before a break. We've got Ken from southeastern Tennessee. He's a former educator, uh, you guys, and uh, he's not so sure you, can, re- you uh, can replace classroom learning. Hey, Ken.
7: Hello. Ken,
0: you with us? Okay, we don't have cat. So, Paul, let me let me ask you a question I want to pick up on, which is put your superintendent hat back on. Right. You've been superintendent in enough cities. What would you do in this scenario if you had teachers union folks, which you would get if you have parents, if you had staff members who came to you and said, Superintendent Ballas, I'm scared, I'm worried, I I am not ready to go back. Well, I this morning, Secretary DeVos basically said, get it together. You need to go back.
1: Well, I would have been doing this in March. Okay, mm-hmm. the bottom line is clearly the data, the science, this is the science tells you that when you take certain precautions, you significantly reduce the risk. And that's why I'm, har- har- I'm harping on the screening, which you can have these screening kiosks, very affordable, the, the masking, the the barriers that can separate this like they're doing in South Korea, like they're doing in Europe. Uh, the The quarantine procedures, when somebody you know, has a a, a, a heightened temperature and the basic social distancing. Sometimes you can social distance, sometimes you can't, but you can install these barriers, very affordable. I mean, literally those, the p- purchasing the equipment and the materials to do that of a school for 500 will cost that school $25,000. I mean, you know, this is not rocket science and you and, and would be reducing the risk for a population that has significantly reduced risks. But you would be made. But but you would do this to reassure the parents that child safety is number one. And I submit to you, for mm. a large number of children, particularly in large urban districts with a disproportionate number of poor children, the safest environment for them to be in, the healthiest environment for them That's to right. be in, is the schools. From a nutritional standpoint, from a health safety standpoint, That's it's right. the schools. From a social emotional standpoint, and how in the world are you going to reopen this economy? for the for working men and women and for the working poor if if you just arrogantly don't open schools again. So, actually, Mike, I'll ask you this. You both respond. So if you have a
0: teacher, an employee who says, I hear you. I'm not comfortable. I have uh, morbidities. I I just I can't do this," And you say to them, I guess you've got to leave. Of course, then the question is,
2: are they fired or have they quit? No, you can get you could have them do other there will be some students who have to be online, for example. We have special needs students who would maybe have to be online. That person could take over those particular tasks. So I you don't fire, you don't destroy somebody's life because of something like this. Exactly. Ability to, to earn a living. Especially if you have a large enough team that you can, you can break into specialties and, and have people do certain things. Uh, I do agree with the caller in a sense, or the uh, writer, that that the classroom is the ultimate place to learn at a, for a child, not necessarily for an adult, but for a child. And so that's why we have to begin with that. But we do know that we'll have to come up with uh, ways of working around, I, I guess I have a morbidity, right? I'm, I'm gonna be 67 years old. So I'm considered at risk Uh, And I will make my judgment. It could be that I will die after going to the university or something because I take a a train to work. That's a risk I take every day. And we all have to measure those risks.
1: Look, you know, my work in Haiti, uh, Paul, I I call my son Paulie. Uh, Paul has put me in a hospital. I'm I'm Paulie, it's okay. Yeah, you know, so while I consider myself fairly healthy, there are risks there too. But I want to say one thing about the teachers. I'm not talking about... you. A lot of these precautions at the schools, while they're obviously designed to keep the kids safe, because one sick kid is one kid, uh, uh, sick kid too many, they're they're primarily, really, to a lot greater extent, designed to keep the faculty safe. And you know what they're doing in Denver? They are taking staff, they're taking teachers who have pre-existing conditions and things like that, and they're working on the remote instruction. There you go. Exactly. So perfectly reasonable sit down and you come up with a strategic plan that's and you right. work together and wow. you don't quibble and you don't talk about reopening collective bargaining agreements everybody we've asked the private sector to make significant sacrifices that's right you can't I, open you can't you know you can't reopen your business you know it's, what you do it, it's hard. Break time we're going to come back and when we okay. come back i want
0: to ask you mr miller if things are so bad economically why is the stock market doing so great we'll be right back on the <laughs> development
4: <laughs>
10: Chris Domine is a husband,
5: father, an athlete, even an Ironman. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ eye and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organ donor.com.
0: And we are back on Beyond the of Beltway with Bruce Dumont. I am Paul listening sitting in for Blues. Our last segment of this hour with these two special guests, Professor Mike Miller from DePaul University and education uh, expert Paul Dallas, former superintendent of the Chicago Public School System. But I want to turn, Mike, to the economy now because, again, with, with you know, we shut it down. We all know the lines, right? People have raised the question, how is it with everything all shut down and, and the jobless at, you know, 40 million or so, 38 million, whatever it's at, but the stock market is acting like like there's nothing going on. How is that possible?
2: Oh, it's, it was down uh, you know, dramatically, only 40 or some percent. And a, a lot of it has been regained and the tech sector is doing fine. Remember that the economy and the stock market are two separate uh, items. But uh, think of it this way as well. If you wanted to put your money somewhere to earn some money, say for your retirement, would you put it into a bank account where you would earn no return? <coughs> Would you put it into U.S. Treasuries where you would earn no return? So what I think what we're seeing is that people recognize that the only way that they're going to make money over time is to take some risks. And they're putting their money, therefore, into a stock market. Now, this is certainly the, uh, a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Also remember that a mere four months ago, the American economy was at full employment with com- uh, inflation under control, GDP growing exactly at its potential. Uh, We're also beginning to make a pretty decent, not complete recovery. And so I think people don't want to be, they don't want to miss out on the possibility that the economy is going to come roaring back completely. And then they're going to have to somehow buy into the market after it's already risen dramatically. But it's it's not a bad investment as long as you're there and you understand the risk that you're taking versus the return uh, that you can gain. Um, you know, Paul Dallas, I do want you to chime in on this. You know,
0: somebody just put—not that you're Social Security age yet, but somebody. I am. I am. I'm 67 too. I'm yeah, much yeah. Under the same I was, yeah. I was trying to be. I was trying to be nice. Um, <laughs> but, you so know, one, of, one of our one of our Facebook viewers made a comment that said, "I'm living on Social Security and I'm not investing it in the stock market." No. You know, Paul, with all that you've
1: done, how you know? Do you? What kind of risk do you see? Would you be taking risks these days? You know, I've never invested in the stock market. I was smart enough when I got married to turn over all of my investment, all of the family investment responsibilities to my wife, who's very conservative on those type of things. So, fortunately, despite the fact that I probably lost about 15 years of pensions by working in places that didn't pay pensions, like, or at least didn't pay me, like working in Haiti and Chile or the times I spent in New Orleans and things like that. Uh, You know, the small pension I have is enough, and my wife's very prudent investments are enough. So that's good. And then my boys did me a a big favor. They decided, well, I don't say, I want to say they did me a big favor, but they decided to, uh, you know, uh, uh, become uh, soldiers. Uh, So the GI Bill took care of uh, their education. So uh, they really helped us out, or I could be paying off student loans right now, or they could be paying off student loans. So
2: So, well, there's one thing that's very interesting. A bunch of research was done to try to figure out why are some people wealthy and some people not, even if they have roughly the same income. And there was one distinction of those who became wealthy over time, and that was taking risks and going into something like a stock market over time has its risks, but its return Mm -hmm. is greater over time. And people who play it very safe all the time, they may be safe, but again, they're not going to be wealthy. And I, certainly right. a person who's living off Social Security, you can't lose your money. And I understand that. But, you know, I'm 67. My wife and I have a bunch of money uh, in a retirement fund. We don't have a pension. Mm-hmm. A- and we, we're at about 60% stocks, which uh, the only way to make a return sufficient to live off of, say, a drawdown of 4 or 5% of your principal is to take risks. Yeah, stocks are a part of that. So our bonds and gold and, and, and uh, all kinds of other assets are ones. So that Mike, you're... Mike, is the reason the stock market, one of the reasons the stock
0: market may be so high today is because, the market and you already said there's the market, there's the economy, two different things. Right. Does the stock market, is it always future looking? It is always, yes. in other words, so it'll look to, no- I don't know when it starts looking to November, right. maybe in October or something, but but we'll start to see it react to what it thinks is going to happen That's in the country. That's
2: right. That's exactly right. It's always forward looking because you can't do anything about the past. In economics, we refer to that as a sunk cost. I mean, that's history. So what it's looking at, what does it think is going to be true about the the, uh, uh, profitability of firms? What is the Federal Reserve going to do? What's the federal government going to do? I think the market is building in the belief that the Fed will keep rates low and that will be good mm-hmm. for the economy. They're building in that the government is going to come by with a second and uh, some kind of stimulus package. Stimulus may not be the right word. It might be more of a, a redistribution of the money, but the market sees that as a positive. And when you add these several positive things, people say this is where I want to be. Plus, my other alternative is safety. And for safety, I will receive zero return with, say, 1% inflation, which means I'm going to go backwards. You know,
1: Paul, you know, I, I just wanted to say one thing. I, I've always preferred to take political risks than, than financial Yeah, risks. I, 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 so you so kind I of prefer- surprised me,
2: Paul, when you yeah. said, told me that.
1: Yeah, but I, but what I want to say about the market, too, there's a lot of people, and I, I know I've talked to my sons and, and other young people, and they said, now's the time to invest in the market because there's this optimism that this is going to rebound and the economy is going to begin yep. to take off. So th- that's incentivizing, as you pointed out, where else are you gonna gamble with uh, with the possibility of a significant yeah. return, if not the market right now? Yeah, Especially but you're,
2: your have decades to make up if they happen to lose some money now. You and I don't, and that's why I have <laughs> that's to, because right. four right. years ago, I was 90% in stocks and I had a change because I was getting towards retirement age, so. That, you know, as we we have about a minute left, a little more than that. So, And Paul, Bell, so I'm gonna come to you
0: because this whole conversation started at the beginning of the hour with you essentially saying, we've gotta get back to school, because of the economy, you pointed to the economy in terms of how important that was. So these two factors that might talk about safety, the economy, is it your sense they do work hand in hand,
1: right? Oh, of course it does. Look, I mean, 85 uh, percent of the children who go to the Chicago public schools are eligible for the free and reduced lunch program, meaning their families. Their families are 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 living below the poverty rate, and that doesn't mean that these are families of people who aren't working. These are people who are working in the restaurants. These are people who are working, yep. uh, you know, for minimum wage. A large number, uh, and a lot of these uh, families are single parent households. Who's going to take care of those children? It it and and, and look, you know, it, it's you can't separate the economy from the damage being done to kids because when these families, so many of them who are operating on the margins. Uh, uh, go into a crisis, that impacts the children at home. See, at the end of the day, yep. it's, it's a catastrophic consequence. And so we've got to get schools reopened safely and appropriately, and we've got to get this economy reopened. so working men and women, uh, particularly uh, who are surviving on the margins, can also go right. back to
0: And with that, man. I have to thank, wrap this and thank yep. Paul Dallas, Mike Miller. My thanks to both of you. We'll be back in the hour.
10: What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea
5: how hard it would be once he got back.
9: I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon.
8: I act like I don't care if he comes to my games. But I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope our marriage makes it.
10: I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not.
8: With everything that he's going through, I hope
10: he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back.
1: I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride.
10: Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours, that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to MakeTheConnection.net and turn Hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a
5: doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com.
2: My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion.
6: I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family.
0: America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives.
10: I'm a veteran. My victory
8: was going from homeless to home.
0: At DAV. We all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to dav.org.
8: Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now, that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for.
1: Well, hi, everybody,
0: and welcome back. I hope for most of you to be on the Beltway with Bruce Dumont. Bruce is off this evening, and I am Paul Listnick sitting in his chair tonight. Well, yeah, not this actual chair, but I'm um, the WGN TV political analyst and host of WGN TV Political Report, which you can catch on Sunday mornings at 9. And uh, it repeats tonight at 1.30 in the morning, just in case you missed it. Joining me now to have a a discussion uh, beyond the pandemic now and into a whole host of political issues, including some of the key Senate races around the country. Because one would have thought there was no chance of the Senate changing hands. Well, well, Democrats think there might be a chance. Let me introduce the uh, panel to you. Joining us from Los Angeles is Douglas Herman. He's a Democratic consultant with the Strategy Group. Uh, Doug, good evening to you. And uh, in Chicago, Josh Cantro, a regular face for those of you on Beyond the Beltway and also from my former show uh, called Politics Tonight. He is an attorney and a Republican strategist. So, gentlemen, let's get into a bunch of issues. Doug, let me start with you. I want to talk a bit about the Black Lives Matter uh, effort we've seen in the protests over these last period of several weeks tied to the defund the, the police kind of notion. Uh, you're our democratic strategist tonight so i understand what's behind it but let me ask you as a concept defund the police doug is that not a risky thing for democrats to be arguing when you have president trump who of course is going to make that sound like democrats don't even want police
7: Well, he's already doing that. So whether or not the Democrats are uh, coming up with the best term or not uh, is immaterial because the Trump campaign and Donald Trump himself are going to take and spin that in the worst possible way. Uh, I think that what you're seeing with the defund police movement is there was a seed change in public opinion at the beginning of this month, and rightfully so. There was some pretty terrible and, and demonstrably bad things happening on TV that we were all seeing and being exposed to with some, some pretty horrible violence that should not be occurring. And so what you saw out of that was a marked sea change. And, and you know, we have not seen anything... This rapid and this quick of a uh, public opinion change, um, probably at all in our lifetime, um, these guys came from basically not very well known to having two-thirds of the public supporting their agenda, or at least their broad agenda. And and the reason I say at least their broad agenda is because I'm, I'm not sure that the defund police movement has um, – been thought through all the way in in the context that when you say that, it sounds like we're shutting down the police department. And that's absolutely not what people are looking to do. When you look at the polls and when you look at the responses that people are giving, they don't want to shut down the the police department, but they do want to take the load off of the police officers for handling social calls and calls that do not require police intervention and police action. And so I think that that's where folks are looking to to see some changes. And I think they're also looking for policy changes so that we don't see these things happen on the streets that are killing innocent people or killing people innocently uh, for no reason.
0: Sorry, Josh, let me take that in, in expand on that a little bit. You're our Republican strategist. And so, you know, essentially as the Black Lives Matters movement has, you know, certainly caught a lot of attention for a lot of people, a lot of support uh, of a lot of people. Um, the president has, in one instance, referred to it as, as hate speech. Um, in addition, it's extended now to the, the Confederate soldiers uh, you know, being taken down and, and the president sort of you know, making a, a, a big argument about that. Do you think the president is handling the Black Lives Matter movement and then what has happened since then tied to what I just said? Is he handling that in the most positive way strategically?
6: No, he's not. He's handled it very poorly, in my view. And I think that that accounts for the uh, part of the drop in poll numbers that we're seeing. I'm not going to come on here and spin and say everything's hunky-dory in Trump land because it's not. I also think, though, that the Republican um, Congress has not handled it well either. They have not had the law enforcement's back. They've been uh, too craven to this movement. The word "defund" means something very specific. It means get rid of the funds for this department, and I, I I think that's a strategic mistake on the part of that movement. And Doug said that well, they don't really mean that, but that's what Minneapolis is trying to do. They're really trying to abolish their police department there, and so I think that you know both the president on the one hand who's carrying it too far. He shouldn't be defending Confederate generals at all. He but he ought to be defending. Jefferson and Washington and the statues of our founding fathers that are being toppled and defaced as well But the Republican Congress doesn't have the police's back. I don't think
0: Um, we're gonna talk later about possible vice presidential picks for Joe Biden But because of what you just said, Josh Doug I want to ask you this Tammy Duckworth last week uh, on um, uh, the Sunday morning CNN show Uh, or or one of the evening shows, she was asked about what about taking down statues of Washington and Jefferson. I had a sense that she sort of had moved on in her head to other issues. But nevertheless, her answer was, well, we ought to have a national dialogue about it. And of course, the president, or at least Tucker Carlson, have had a field day with that. Uh, Is that a mistake for Democrats to, I haven't heard the Democrats say take down Washington and Jefferson, but is it a mistake for them to even say, let's have a national dialogue about it?
7: I don't think it's a mistake to have a national dialogue about this. There has been no dialogue, and we've never even had a conversation about the Confederate soldiers, who I think the movement uh, rightfully de- deemed and, and termed as losers and traitors. That's the first time that that kind of terminology has been used, and that that's true. That should be happening, but I'm not sure that having a conversation is the worst thing. I'm not sure that we should go taking down Washington and Jefferson memorials either, but at least having a conversation so that we can get some things out in the open and, and Put it on the table is a fair request.
0: By the way, Josh, somebody put on Facebook as a comment, Tammy was outright nasty. I assume that means in her response to Tucker Carlson and what she said. Um, Was she nasty or would you say, Josh, even as a Republican,
6: she was defending herself? She was also offended by the attacks. Well, I, I think that she opened herself up to the attacks. I don't know whether she had moved on or not, but her comment could have been construed as we should have a discussion about. Uh, our founding fathers, Washington and Jefferson. And I got to tell you, you know, at times Tucker Carlson does go too far, but he's having a field day because she gave him that opening. And for Doug to say, I mean, and I respect Doug and all of that, but I mean, no, we shouldn't have a conversation about Washington and Jefferson. And if the Democrats want to run on that and want to run on that conversation, then that's going to put the Trump campaign back in the game. But Trump should not be running on protecting confederate generals there's got to be a distinction as far as i'm concerned those statues that can be left up to the local communities but i'm no fan of those statues i'm from the south okay but the founding fathers forget about it that's where i think most americans even probably half the democrats would draw the line doug it almost
0: seems like that discussion can become a distraction as i said i'm not sure any democrats want to tear down washington and jefferson though i understand the dialogue they own slaves and that's that's, they had, you know, very complex lives. Um, but you also had the story uh, about during this past week uh, or just before of the president uh, apparently, you know, learning that Putin was, um, you know, paying bounties for the heads of Americans, essentially, for the deaths of Americans, I should say, uh, in Afghanistan and didn't react to it. He says he was never briefed. Others say he, he were. But now the Democrats, it's like you don't even hear about that anymore, does
7: Well, this is part of the problem with Donald Trump, and part of this is by design, and part of it is just because of who he is. Uh, he's always trying to create basically anti-aircraft flak, so that you know what he's trying to do. He's just dropping flak bombs out, uh, just like the old World War II planes were going by when they're doing their bombing runs. He's got all this flak coming out, and he's trying to distract everybody. And a scandal a day has the ability to do that. And you know, frankly, I think the public has been numbed by all of his scandals, the way in which he's done this, and and the volume and the speed with which he shifts gears. You just can't keep up with this guy. It's impossible for a regular person
4: to do that all right so we're, respect- we're going
0: to take a break josh i will come to you right after we take the break folks want to call in 800-723-8289 a whirlwind of topics tonight you do not want to change the channel because there's a lot to talk about we'll be back on beyond Bell.
3: there are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases wash your hands avoid close contact with people who are sick avoid touching your eyes nose and mouth stay home when you are sick cover your cough or sneeze Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. A few years ago, Steve Faircow's lungs were failing. I
5: don't think I had more than a couple weeks
3: to live. That's
5: when Steve received a lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. Now Steve can do things he never imagined, like climbing 94 floors to the top of a skyscraper, I never knew that breathing could feel this good. It's an incredible gift. What could you make possible as an organ eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration.
0: And welcome back to Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont. I'm Paul listening from WGN-TV, sitting in for Bruce tonight, along with my friends Doug Herman, Democratic Consultant, and Josh Cantro, Republican Attorney and Strategist. Josh just before the break, we were talking about um, the, the story about the president being briefed uh, about the Russian uh, Russians offering money for the deaths of American soldiers. I will tell you to let you comment on that. Uh, somebody on Facebook put the comment. The president wasn't briefed on that because the, the uh, intelligence wasn't verified. But that's not really what it takes to get intelligence to the president, is it?
6: Yeah, and and I don't really know so much about that. I want to respond more to Doug's comment about The president and these alleged scandals and that it's it's uh one thing after another and that he's too aggressive he can be and you know what i've criticized him for that but also let me say this this is the first republican we've had in 20 years who's fought back against the media george bush let the media run all over him and uh mccain and romney did as well and trump is a fighter and he won the white house and Republicans should be grateful for that, even never Trump Republicans. These scandals, we're going to see the biggest scandal could be after John Durham issues his report about what the outgoing administration did to spy on the Trump campaign. So I, I think that this president, who's been investigated a lot, he's still standing tall. Um, and I think that Republicans should should respect that. Uh, Josh, I'm going to stay with you with this next question.
0: Doug, come to you. But as we know... Uh, The president just pardoned Roger Stone, who was convicted, uh, I believe, of of seven offenses. Even Robert Mueller issuing an op-ed today saying, look, the guy was convicted uh, and he was guilty. Even William Barr uh, really thought that Stone should have done time. But my question to you is, President Trump always presents himself as the law and order president. He says it all the time. He tweets it all the time. Does he get to be the law and order president if indeed he is pardoning folks like Roger Stone and maybe some others before the election?
6: I'm not a huge fan of the Stone pardon. I'm going to say it right there. Uh, I, th- I think the timing of it was was bad. He could have waited until after the election. Uh, having said that, uh, there were a lot of irregularities with, with Stone and with how he was uh, investigated and why they went after him. So I don't have a huge, huge problem with it, but I understand the criticism. Um, d- does it hurt on the law and order front I don't think so because the law and order he's talking about is the law and order that people most people are concerned about and that is being victims of of a crime
0: um doug let me go to the that, that piece with you on Roger stone look the argument is for Democrats we'll hear about it for a couple of days several congress members of Congress issuing statements Mitt Romney a Republican senator issuing a, a, a statement or a tweet about it anyway but like so many other things, it's just something else. The Democrats, they'll just move on to something else. Right.
7: Well, uh, and again, back to the Trump thing, you know, they probably will just move on, but it doesn't mean that it's right. And this is this is incredible. This was an amazing feat of hubris and just political retribution. You know, this week we saw Bindman have to leave and resign his post because of his his work in the impeachment Uh, trial and, and what he did to blow the whistle there. We also saw the commutation of Roger Stone's sentence. This looks like a Russian Politburo move, not something that the United States president would be doing. The kinds of things that Trump has been doing are the kinds of things that if we were watching foreign countries do this, we would be sending in observers and parties to stop this kind of activity and behavior. And we would be setting up programs to stop these corruptions that are occurring under the Trump administration. It's just outrageous that it continues like this.
6: Let's so, move on talk about. Go, go ahead, Josh. I, I just want to respond. I mean, Doug uses the term "corruptions." Well, Trump hasn't been convicted of anything. He's been investigated. The uh, Mueller investigation went nowhere, and the impeachment went nowhere. And so, I think we're using the term "corruptions" too too quickly. If you want to look at pardons, there are always controversial pardons that presidents issue: Obama, Bush clinton issued a slew of them that were very controversial to campaign contributors including mark rich and others and i don't remember the democrats really complaining about it back then so pardons are always controversial
0: um okay like i said i've got a ton of topics this this hour so it's going to seem like a whirlwind but doug let me come to you i wanted to take a look at joe biden's vp pick uh or the possibilities of it uh even that Amy klobuchar Klobuchar took herself out of the race and said joe you need to pick an african-american woman um there is the name Tammy Duckworth being bandied about, bandied about. She's Thai. She's not African-American. But what do you think? What, uh, do you have a sense from everything you hear of what direction uh, uh, Biden might go? And, of course, Kamala Harris from California, your home state, she's talked about as well.
7: Yeah, and Kamala is uh, leading the pack in terms of you know, when you look at all the handicapping stories that are out there, she's the odds-on favorite to be the pick. But I think there's a host of folks who are capable and, and would make good uh, additions to the ticket. Tammy Duckworth, we've, we've spoken about. Um, Karen Bass has, has received a lot of mentions. Uh, recently, and she's done a lot of great work on police reform issues, and and has really taken the the lead on those kinds of things. She's a very seasoned and pragmatic leader. She comes from California. Uh, she was the Assembly Speaker, so she's somebody who could be really solid. I think Val Demings has a lot of potential. The mayor from Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms. There's a there's a host of women who fit that criteria. If if the pick is to find uh, an African American woman, a black woman for Joe Biden to be on the ticket, there's a host of well qualified women who fit that criteria you probably would have included susan rice right Uh, absolutely
0: okay josh so here's how i'm going to give you that question i know you're republican but be honest now is there a democratic pick given the fact that most people don't vote for whoever that is anyway it's all about the all about the presidential candidate but is there anybody that would keep you up at night that you'd say that's
6: tough in terms of if they became president
0: No, well, uh, you can analyze it however you want. But I mean, is there a vice presidential pick that Biden can make that you would hear and go, wow, that one is tough for us?
6: Uh, No, I don't think it really matters. I think that uh, Biden uh, is so mentally incompetent that uh, whoever he picks is eventually going to be president if the Biden ticket wins in November. I mean, Biden is just losing it. So, you know, uh, I think all of these candidates that Doug mentioned have real problems. And by uh, the way, Doug,
0: speak, speaking on that issue, you know, it, it is interesting. Clearly, Republicans and Trump are going to put that on, on Joe Biden. You're seeing the ads. He's not ready for this. He's losing it. Um, President Trump announcing, I think, yesterday that he took a mental test of some sort and he aced it
7: yeah my understanding of that cognitive test is that it's not a very difficult test to ace and it's pretty basic stuff and the fact that he's bragging about that and i think there's there's real concerns about what trump has done in office the the, the activities that he's done there's there's a lot of speculation about whether or not he's got uh, issues health-wise and, and whether or not he's up to it. We don't know why he went to Walter Reed in the middle of the night six months ago. We still have no answer to that. We've seen him having f- physical difficulties, but we don't know what's going on. And I think, it's, I think it's something that we should be concerned about because we don't have his, his, his health records. We don't have his financial records. There's a, again, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a broken record on this. We don't know what's really going on behind the curtain with Trump on his health.
0: Josh, but, really, I mean, both of them can point to each other they can both make ads and they have that says okay. the other one's losing it
6: right and i mean there is a great video compilation uh 20 minutes of joe biden just in the past few months losing it i mean there's the video of him sucking on his wife's finger as he's de- delivering a speech he can't put two sentences together it is just clear that this man who was never smart to begin with. He lied about his law school grades. He was actually in the very bottom of his class, barely got through. You know, this is someone who was never smart to begin with and is now in serious cognitive decline. And it's just obvious for all to see. Just, I mean, just now,
0: in fairness, gosh, does it bother you that the president won't even let us see his his records?
6: Uh, the records at Wharton have been buried several Well, as far as I'm concerned, I, I would love to have rules of engagement where records have to be released obama didn't release any of his academic records why should trump you know so i mean there's a precedent there but there ought to be rules of engagement about tax records financial records academic records and medical records going forward maybe there's a commission and then you get bipartisan legislation but right Um, now they're playing according to the rules as they are doug here's a multiple
0: choice question for you Conway West enters the race because, A, he really is a Trump fan and wants to take African-American votes from Joe Biden, or B, he's an idiot.
7: Or C, he never really actually follows through and gets on the ballot, which is more likely. Um, I my, my sense is that this is just another Kanye distraction. And, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about Joe Biden's capabilities and whether he's up for the job. And, you know, one thing that he hasn't done, and and that's to preside over the deaths of more than 130,000 Americans from COVID. And, you know, when we talk about all of these other things and don't mention these deaths and Trump's uh, disastrous handling of it, we're walking past the, we're whistling past the graveyard on this, literally, and not thinking about and talking about the real issues here, because it's not about Biden's
6: health, it's about Trump's record. Uh, Trump is not responsible for those COVID deaths. We have a federal system, as Doug knows, and ultimately it's up to the governors, the mayors, and the local officials to do what they can do. We would have had these deaths under any administration.
0: And Josh, well, this, Josh, let me Josh, let me follow you. Think, but there, there has been no federal approach. You're right. The president has said let the let the governors do their thing. Would we not be in a different place if the president had said, "Look, national mask wearing policy
6: or"? You know anything on a federal level? He doesn't have the authority to do that. He has no authority to 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 do that. I mean, the president would have liked to have done certain things, but it's up to the governors. Look, the president was on this way before Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio were. The president shut down tr- China travel at the end of January, or at least most of it. And de Blasio and Cuomo were saying, you know, we're, we we want to be open. And they didn't shut down until toward the end of March. You had Fauci himself saying on May on March seventh, it's fine to go on cruises. So to lay hundred and thirty thousand deaths at Trump or any of the deaths at Trump is just just wrong.
0: All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to turn to the Senate raising to see whether the Senate might turn uh, turn powers uh, in this next election. I do see several callers on some of the earlier topics. I thank you for that. But others can also call in 800 We'll be right back on Beyond the Bill.
8: Every year, millions of Americans use opioids to manage pain. Pain can be unrelenting, overwhelming and all consuming. So why do so many of us try to manage pain only from the palm of our hands? Doctor-prescribed opioids are appropriate in some cases, but they just mask the pain. And reliance on opioids has led to the worst drug crisis in American history. That's why the CDC recommends safer alternatives, like physical therapy, to manage pain. Physical therapists treat pain through movement, hands-on care, and patient education. No warning labels required. And by increasing physical activity, you can also reduce your risk of other chronic diseases. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. When it comes to your health, you have a choice. Choose more movement and better health. Choose physical therapy. Visit MoveForwardPT.com to find a physical therapist in your area. This message is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association.
0: No way with Bruce Dumont. I'm Paul Listening from WGN-TV. In for Bruce tonight, we're continuing our very fast-moving conversation uh, with my guest, Democrat Doug Herman, the Democratic consultant with the strategy group from Los Angeles, and old-time friend Josh Cantrell, a Republican attorney and a Republican, well, I guess you're a regular attorney, right? <laughs> and a uh, Republican-, <laughs> yeah, Republican strategist as well. I wonder how that played out in the courtroom. Um, I, I want to turn now to the to the fight for the U.S. Senate. Uh, because to be honest, Doug, um, you know, up until a period of time ago, I mean, people, Democrats didn't even talk about the Senate turning. There wasn't a
7: chance. Do you still see it that way? Absolutely not. The Senate is 100 percent in reach and uh, likely at this point to turn. If you run through the states that you need to have, Arizona, we've got a seven point lead there. Colorado, we got a 10 point lead. We're beating Susan Collins in Maine. We're beating Tom Tillis in, in North Carolina. And the important thing that goes along with that is that the presidential race is uh, even most in most of those states, an even bigger lead for for Biden. And so when Biden's winning the state and um, bringing the, the ticket at the top through, the Senate candidates are, are likely to come with him. And in those four states alone, we could take the Senate back. We've got Iowa with Teresa Greenfield and Joni Ernst. Uh, is now very competitive and, and Ernst is in big trouble there. And you got Steve Bullock running strong in Montana against uh, Danes. And so there are six races right now that are legitimately Democratic opportunities for pickups. And there is another half dozen that are huge headaches for the Republicans. Races like Mitch McConnell coming up, coming in um, with, with a very aggressive uh, challenge from Amy McGrath. You've got Lindsey Graham, who's getting challenged by Jaime, Jaime Harrison who's raising money by the stacks. And you've got places um, with uh, Kansas, we've got Democratic candidates there who are raising money in stacks, millions of dollars per quarter. So what's happened is that the field has expanded dramatically. And it's also the final point here is that a lot of the states that are competitive here are because there's Corona problems. And so you can't disassociate that from the political problems that you're seeing with the Republican Party.
0: Josh, in some of the moderate states, maybe a Cory Gardner of Colorado or a Susan Collins of Maine, um, you sort of see them, or at least Susan Collins certainly lately, running away pr- from President Trump. Yeah. They attest themselves to him for a very long time. My question now is, in these Senate races, first of all, do you fear, I mean, as a Republican, you're going to say you don't, but I mean, but candidly, do you fear the Democrats could turn the Senate? And secondly, um, what do you say in some of these moderate states where
6: essentially people have Supported the president no matter what, and maybe now does it cost them? I mean, look, Paul. I'm uh, I'm I'm born to speak candid with you. I'm not going to come on and spin. I mean, I think we're hearing some spin from Doug, but that's fine. I wrote a piece in American Thinker today in which I laid it out. I said President Trump's re-election prospects do not look good at the moment, um, but at the same time, I think that the polls are probably not picking up some Trump voters and. As to Doug's point about uh, big trouble, I wouldn't say anybody's in big trouble right now, because the the reality is, is that most Americans are not paying attention, and we're political junkies, and the people that watch this show are political junkies, but the reality is, is that most Americans are not paying attention now. They will come sometime after Labor Day, and especially as you get into late September and early October. So... Uh, to say that someone's in big trouble right now, I think it's wrong, but I do see trouble on the horizon, and I am concerned. I'm going to take this. We're, we've got a caller. we got several callers, but I want to talk to
0: Ron. He's from Michigan, Barron Springs, Michigan, Varian uh, Springs, and Ron, and the reason I want to take you is because you are saying Republicans fear Tammy Duckworth. We've had that discussion, but you, know, you heard Josh say, no, we don't. What is your thought?
4: Paul, I'm a Vietnam veteran. Uh, and Tammy Duck, once her story gets out with her her family background going back to the Revolutionary War, but just to bring it up to to the Vietnam War, her father was a helicopter pilot, two tour, tour, two tours in Vietnam. Okay, and Tammy is is uh, Thai American, but she speaks fluent Thai, fluent Indonesian. Okay, it, it's the, it's the the American story: selling flowers as a teenager on the streets of Honolulu to support her family, living on food stamps. Okay. And to, to to attack her, her patriotism, her, her right to speak out with, with the sacrifices she's given in her family. You know, Tucker Klansman and Trump, they fear her because they are trying to give her the Max Cleland swift boat attack early. Because, like I said, she she should be at the top of the ticket, all right, in my opinion. But Tammy Duckworth, she's a winning candidate. She's a winning for the, for the Democrats. Anybody that Joe's picked, Joe's picks. I will vote for, but Tammy will bring the house down. She will. You cannot intimidate her. She has thrown down the gauntlet. She has called Trump cadet bone spurs. She threw that out early. She's a fighter. Let's get the fight on. Okay. Let's get the fight on.
0: Ron, thank you. Doug, let me come to you on that. And here's the point. We heard what Ron said, but then again, we also know Republicans are very good at this. They took down John Kerry. That was the swift boat situation. Uh, Ron mentioned next Cleland. They, they they took him out. I mean, they, these war veterans. That is not anything Republicans seem to fear. So if Tammy is on the ticket, um, you you have you know uh, Donald Trump, who's never served a day. Uh, even Don, Tucker Carlson's never served in the army. But for some reason, when it comes to voting, that service to the military thing, while many respect it, Republicans just seem to be able to get that issue put aside.
7: Well, it's not only that they put it aside; they denigrate it, and they um, do some really horrible and repugnant things what what happened to max cleland what happened to john Kerry? what what they've done to tammy duckworth these are not the things we should do to our veterans this is not how they should be treated (laughs) excuse me the political process does not bring that in just because they're participants in it. it does not mean that they should have their service record tarnished and the republicans seem to take great joy and glee in doing this and i don't understand why they do that because they should be venerating these people not denigrating them
6: can i respond paul Yeah, I I just want to say this. Uh, Doug talks about horrible and repugnant, like this is something that Republicans do, and it's only Republicans that do. I could go down a litany of things that the Democrats did to Mitt Romney, including Harry Reid getting on the Senate floor and calling Mitt Romney a tax cheat and later saying, yeah, I didn't have any proof of that, but I just kind of did it for sport because I could and I had immunity on the Senate floor. I could go on and on and on. This is politics. As far as Ron's comment about, you know, uh, Tammy Duckworth would bring the House down, no vice presidential candidate has ever brought the House down. It's been shown by poll after poll after poll over centuries that vice presidential candidates have negligible impact on the presidential race. But even Josh, Josh, even you here,
0: you said this one makes a difference because it's your expectation that that is likely to step in
6: oh i mean biden I, I i still i said on this show last time that biden wouldn't be the eventual nominee i'm still not clear that he will be because his mental incompetence is so striking every time he comes out he just is losing it so we could be talking about the eventual candidate in that case well you know what it it would make a bigger difference but if we're talking about a traditional vice presidential role It just hasn't made much of a difference.
0: Uh, Josh, let me me stay with you. I'm going to switch topics again to the DACA situation. We know that the Trump administration uh, fought DACA. The Supreme Court essentially said it's not going anywhere because Trump administration, you you didn't handle this properly. Then the president came out and said, well, you know what? We're going to handle this properly and get rid of DACA by November. And then yesterday in an interview with Fox, he goes, I'm issuing a, he went back and forth between an executive order and a bill, but somewhere in there, um, he plans to issue something that saves DACA.
6: What's going on with him, Josh, in the DACA situation? I I think he's trying to figure out politically whether it helps him or not. Uh, That's the honest answer in terms of whether uh, he can pick up uh, some Hispanic American votes by doing this. Uh, look, John Roberts, um, it was a procedural issue. Uh, he says that Trump, the Trump administration didn't go through the administrative procedures. act yeah. correctly? Yeah. And um, it was a disappointing decision to a lot of us. But in any event, that's the law of the land. And so, so Doug, Doug, let me
0: come to you on that. You know, immigration, a hot issue, the president's number one issue all the way through. So once again, um, you know, they often say Democrats can can grab defeat out of the victory, out of the jaws of victory. Right. So my question is, on this immigration issue in DACA, if the president issues some sort of executive order that provides a path to citizenship, which is what he said he was going to do, um, does the president win on immigration going into November?
7: Absolutely not. You've got to look at this guy's record in the totality. And a promise to do something is not a promise that is uh, is not an action that's executed, and Trump has made promises to do things, uh, all kinds of things over the over the course of his presidency. And just making a pledge to do it doesn't mean he's going to do it. And you know whether it's going to be an actual bill or an executive order or gets done is still to be determined because tomorrow that thought is going to be very far from his mind.
0: Um. Doug, on the health care issue, I want to get both of you in before we take the break, but on the health care issue, the president has said we're here to take care of pre-existing conditions and whatever, although the argument before the Supreme Court by the Trump administration made just a couple of weeks ago again is the Obama uh, the uh, Affordable care- Health Care Act has to go. And yet the president says we're here to give you great health care. The president has a strong base. They don't move from that, Doug.
7: They don't move from that, but he says that. But what? At the same time, he has no plan. And pre-existing condition coverage is the most popular part of the Affordable Care Act. It's the reason why it was passed. It was the impetus for getting it passed. And Trump has no plan. There's nothing moving through Congress for uh, protecting that and keeping that protection in place. And there's no executive order that he's going to administer that also does that. And so there is no plan. He just wanted to take it away simply to spite Obama and take away that victory.
0: Josh, I want to give you a chance to respond to that because health care is critical and,
6: you know, the Republicans keep saying repeal, but I don't know what the replacement is. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a bad issue for the Republicans. I think the Republicans just need to leave health care alone. They had their chance. They had complete control of government for two years and they blew it in. I was very critical of that effort at the time. But at this point, so close to an election, I don't think that's a good issue for them. I do think law and order, and I do think toppling monuments and statues and things like that are good issues but they need to be articulated better Healthcare is not a good
0: issue yeah and there's a lot of critical with the pandemic is going to be a critical issue coming up as well all right we're going to take one final break in the show callers that want to talk about the supreme court 1-800-723-8289 the political implications of the supreme court's decision this term we'll be right back I'm beyond the belt
10: we are strong we are resilient and we will get through this together But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Chris Domine is a husband, father, and athlete.
0: All right. Welcome back to Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont. Paul listening from WGN-TV sitting in for Bruce, along with my guests. I'll reintroduce in a second. But I do want you to know that Beyond the Beltway has a GoFundMe effort going on uh, because the satellite transmission we use to bring this to you ain't free. So if you would like to visit that, it is a GoFundMe page for Beyond the Beltway. You'll help support the satellite transmission of the show. Returning to my guest, Democrat Doug Herman out of Los Angeles, the strategy group, Republican Josh cancer or Republican strategist, and I did read your article today uh, that you wrote, lots of writing from you. So let's talk about the Supreme Court, but in a general way. I understand our, our viewers and listeners are not all lawyers. Um, so, Doug, I'm going to start with you. Josh is a lawyer, but one of the questions has been, you know, the president's made two appointments to the Supreme Court and in some critical cases involving LGBTQ plus rights and, uh, and in some other cases hey, his, his picks didn't do what people expected them to do. So is it your sense going into this election that the president now has a stronger argument to say, hey, I need to appoint even more Supreme Court justices? Or does it hurt him basically saying, I guess your picks aren't doing what you want them to do anyway? What do you think, Doug?
7: Well, you know, I think that there's a little bit of the, the, the fact that these picks aren't doing the things that he wants. And these are these are legitimate issues where they're breaking from him and his political agenda, and it's not like they're taking the wrong position. And one of these one of these decisions was seven to two. Another one, you know, these are these are not squeaking through at five four for the most part. These are big decisions that are coming through, and the, the justices that he appointed are certainly not voting for him in his way. But you know, we've got a, a host of other judges. He's got two hundred judges he's appointed. They're, the impact of the Trump presidency on the judgeships in America is going to be long lasting. You know, Josh, it's almost
0: as though the Supreme Court saves the drama for last. It's not the way they work, but um, they heard the Trump tax case, I think, on May 14th. And so the last decision they issued were indeed the two Trump tax cases, uh, the efforts of congressional committees that want financial records from the president and the Southern District of New York, who also wants financial records because of a criminal investigation. So while those were seven to two decisions as well, um, both Trump appointees took the position. The president is not above the law. You're a lawyer, uh, Josh. I'm assuming you don't have any bad things to say about the justices for taking that position, do you? Oh, by the way, the two dissenters even agreed the president is not above the law.
6: Oh, uh, I, uh, of course. I, I have no issue with that. But the, a few things I would note. Uh, Doug talked about, well, it, like this has been a big defeat for the president. The president has won a lot of cases at the Supreme Court. There were a few in the past few weeks that went against them, but by and large, he's winning at the Supreme Court. Secondly, um, I find it interesting that why is it always the conservative justices that move to the middle? Why don't we ever see the so-called liberal justices do that?
0: And I and but I th- did, by the way, you did get that a little bit. I mean, the Oklahoma case, you actually did have some of the liberals shift over on a couple of those cases, but it, but okay, okay. But I'm
6: just saying. Before, you know, it was Anthony Kennedy swung to the center. Now it's John Roberts is the is the center vote. Why, why don't we see that with the uh, Democratic appointed justices? But I think Roberts is trying to show that the court has, you know, independence and all of that. But overall, Doug, I will agree with something Doug said. The Trump administration's impact on the court is going to be long lasting, you know, about you've got almost a better chance of winning the lottery than getting a case heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. Most cases are decided by the 300 district court judges and appellate court judges that Trump has appointed, and that's going to be a key, long-lasting impact of his first administration.
0: You know, Doug, some people say the Supreme Court really shouldn't be about politics anyway. Chief Justice Roberts, who is no liberal, um, and on on most You know, uh, most uh, uh, social issues cases, you can count on him to be a conservative vote. But it's almost as though he seems to be looking beyond that. You know, these years will be known as the Roberts Court. It's just the way it works. The years of Chief Justice John Roberts will be the Roberts Court. And because Anthony Kennedy is off the court, who was the swing vote, it's almost as though John Roberts feels it's me or nobody right now. Uh, On the Transgender LGBTQ Civil Rights Act, as you mentioned, it was seven to two. Roberts voted with the Liberals, but he wasn't even needed in that in that case it was you know Gorsuch who basically stepped over and said the word sex encompasses all those people, a Trump appointee. Is it your sense that we will see more of this balance from Chief Justice Roberts because indeed he will view this as his legacy?
7: I think so. I mean he's taken a really firm control of this court and he's really put his stamp on it in terms of the decisions that are coming out and the direction that those decisions are taking. So I think this is a very clear, leadership by, by Supreme Court Justice Roberts. And what he's doing is going to be remembered, maybe up in the in the annals of the greats, but we'll, we'll see in the end where his where his legacy ends up. But he's done some pretty impressive things recently in terms of running the court and, and making some decisions that, that don't have exactly the best receptions at the White House.
0: By the way, Josh, just before we wrap, I'm leaving the Supreme Court for a moment, but the president not happy with mail-in voting as a possibility uh many other people just going the whole military votes by
6: mail and you voted by mail mr president you have a problem with mail-in voting i do with massive mail-in voting because of what we're seeing with ballot harvesting um both by democrats in california and republicans in north carolina i think that we have to have better safeguards uh the polls should be plenty safe to go to people can wear masks the coronavirus is still around and uh that's really how it should be done in-person voting where uh there is less uh potential for voter fraud and voter harvesting Doug, what do you think
7: We should expand the use of mail voting as widely and as broadly as possible. The only instance of fraud that's ever occurred has been the Republicans down in North Carolina in a congressional campaign. There's no fraud in California. This is a a conservative talking point that they trot out every election, talking about ballot harvesting in California. There's no such thing as ballot harvesting. California has set up its laws and rules so that your vote counts. When you decide to vote, your vote's gonna count. And if you cast it, it's gonna get counted. And they've extended the the deadline to send in a mail ballot. They've opened up early ballot centers and they've expanded the mail voting. That's what should be done in every state, not just California.
0: Guys, I wish we had another hour, but we don't. My thanks to Doug Herman and Josh Cantro. Thank you, guys. Great insight. I appreciate it. Our thanks as well to Andrew Marshall, Fritz Goldman, and Michael Cappuccelli for their assistance in the production of this program. I'm Paul Lisnick. My pleasure to be in for Bruce Dumont this evening. Catch WGN-TV's political report every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. And with that, we will appreciate uh, you joining Bruce again next week when he will be here. Thanks for watching and listening, everybody. Good night.